dear husband, I write you a loving farewell and my children. Give my kind love to mother, sister and all inquiring friends. Be good to the bairns. I hope you will forgive me as God will forgive me. Cursed White has done all this. She swore I had taken Siller, which was false, but they wrong everybody. I have nothing to live for. I have no friends in this world. Hello and welcome to the recent episode of Borders Blatherings. This is part two of our multi-part podcast, Murder in Style. Hi, so, um, okay, so Doug, where we are now is the shop that was the white shop, which is now a private residence uh-huh. in, in yes. yet yes. uh, as part of Stow. Yeah, this is, this is near where Stuart and Karen live. It is, no. it's, yeah. it's very close to our, to <laughs> yeah. our friend Stuart and Karen. Oh, very yes. good, very good. Yes. And if we go, I've got the map in my hands, Mary, and if we go... What, 200, 300 metres to the north, we find Mill Bank, the woolen mill. Yes, and that's the, the site the, of the where the, the, the mill yes. woolen mill would have been beside the cottages. It's no longer there. Uh, it's just open ground now. Yep. But this, this is quite important in terms of the story and how things actually unfold. Yes, to actually see see the places that we're actually talking about in the story and uh-huh. how, how close they actually all were to each other. Indeed, indeed. And about... 200, 250 metres south of here is Manor Head. Yeah. It's Manor Head, and that's where the doctor's surgery... Both doctors Do- lived Dr. there. Dr Middleton yeah. and Dr McDougall were there. Now, that begs the question, because the post office, which is still here today, is further away from the scene Yes, you have to pass... the doctors are. You would have to pass the doctors to get to the post... Well, you'd have to pass the doctors to get to the, the police station... And then round the corner from the police station was the post office where you could send a telegram down to get the uh, gala doctor coming up. Well, that kind of raises a question for me then. In yes. terms of <laughs> why they would pass obvious places in order to uh, make other things happen. Yes, every time we look at something in this story, there are more and more questions get raised. But we can see standing here just how small Killichiet was at that time. And it, I mean, it was quite a separate hamlet from Stow. Um, but you can see even from, you know, from the mill, the mill cottages, the shop, the post office, the police station and the railway station where presumably Dr. Buckingham came back, it's all pretty close. Yes, yes. You know, yes. You, uh, you know, a, a fit young 10-year-old being sent to send a telegram could have, could have quite easily run it in five minutes. You know, it's pretty compact. And, and just a question for you, in 1871 or so, when this tragic thing takes place. Would Kilokiet and Stow be viewed as two separate communities with <laughs> friendly or otherwise ri- rivalry? Because this seems germane to the story for me. Yes, I mean, to themselves, they were very separate villages. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Kilokiet yeah. is described as the hamlet that lies to the north of Stow, which I'm f- sure the folk in Kilokiet didn't like. <laughs> but yeah, there was a bit of bit of friendly rivalry, which I think has extended to this day, shall we say. Um, but actually what's interesting is if you look at the school which was built just after this tragedy happened, the, bu- the school was built between the two villages to, to try and sort of bring them together, as it were. But there was, yes, right, that friendly right. rivalry and possibly in the past, maybe that rivalry wasn't quite so friendly. We, we don't actually it. know, but they were very separate. And, and you said to this day, well, this morning I was in the local cafe... Yeah. And uh, one of the employees there, I was told, still views that part of Stow, the Kilochiet end of Stow, that's where the strange people live. Oh, ah, the, well, the, there you the, go. The bad part of the village. <laughs> so, and this so, is yes. a wee village. <laughs> and it's a small village to begin with, yes. But so, it actually yeah. shows standing here just how small the community was that yeah. Eliza was living in at the time. Um, you know, I mean, you're talking about maybe 100 people in this tiny little Kilohiet community at that time, if that. 
And everybody would have known everybody. They would have done it. Everybody either worked in the mill or they worked in the farms. And it's you know, all within ev- walking ev- distance. Yeah, absolutely yeah. all within yeah. walking distance. You know what I mean? The whites were the, the main general provision uh, shop in the area. You know, everybody went to that shop and, you know, everybody went to the church, although, of course, Eliza and Samuel didn't because now they we weren't talked members of the that. They were Episcopalian yes. church members. Yes, so it was, you know, so they wouldn't have no gone to the, yeah. the, they wouldn't have gone to the Episcopal church because there wasn't one. Um, so that would have marked them out. But other than that, this mm. is a tight-knit little community. Everybody knows everybody and everybody knows each other's business. And the fact that Eliza did not then attend the church service on a Sunday, that would have added to perhaps a sense of isolation. It could have done, yes. Yes, it would have done. I mean, everybody went to the kirk on a Sunday. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, the mill worked constantly, 7 in the morning to 7 in the evening, Monday through Saturday. But on Sundays, you went to the kirk, and the fact that they... I mean, they might have gone, but it's known that they were not kirk members. They weren't Church of Scotland members, so that in itself was an oddity about them. Yeah, yeah. And do you do you remember um, when we recorded part one of this story? In the introduction, I said that uh, I said to listeners, "This is not a traditional whodunit." Mm-hmm. But to be honest, the more and more I read of all the source material you've unearthed, the more a whole range of questions come into my mind yes about the events yes. how they're described who does and who doesn't give evidence at the trial of Eliza yes there's so and much and I think we need to pick this story yeah. apart a little bit there's there's and so much so many questions being raised so I suggest we go and find ourselves somewhere warm have a cuppa and start on those questions and Cassie has decided we've got Cassie with us um, she's on a lead <laughs> <laughs> but she's decided we have to go somewhere warm too haven't you Cassie Come on then. Mary, uh, in part one, we laid out and discussed in some detail the key events leading up to the murder trial of Eliza Clafton. We visited the location of these tragic events, and this is perhaps why we're both now sniffing and coughing. We are a bit, yes. <laughs> and we've dug a little bit deeper into available records and documents. And as we've done that, we've begun to uncover a number of, I would say, curious and perhaps inconsistent pieces of information about this entire tragedy. Yes, yes. Every time I think I know what's going on, I read another document and realise I haven't a clue what is going on. Yeah, this is, the, 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 this is keeping me awake at night. Yeah. So, in this second part of, of our story, we've decided to take a much closer look into the source material that we have to hand. Perhaps a good place to start with this would be the recent discoveries you have made in the pre-trial documents, mm-hmm. which is causing me some concern. Well, yes. As I say, we sort of thought we knew what was going on until we came across the document that listed Eliza and Samuel as a co-accused. Yes, yes. And that sort of, I think it threw both of us into a bit of a tailspin because we're thinking, what does that mean? Does it mean what we think it means? What's going on here? So I scuttled away to speak to a friend who's a barrister and she said, you're a twit. Yes, of course, co-accused means they were both accused. So I sort of outlined what had happened and obviously without reading the over 900 documents that I have read, she said, what she thinks has happened is the police have turned up, Isabella is dead, mm-hmm. Eliza has a sliced throat, the child, Daniel, has a sliced throat and the father's in the house. So the standard procedure is to say, well, obviously there's been a murder. I don't know who's done it at this point because the police have to send a report <coughs> to the sheriff, and the sheriff sends a report to the procurator fiscal's office to say there's been a murder. The two co-accused are Eliza and Samuel Clafton. So far, so ordinary. Standard police procedure. Standard police procedure. Slightly odd that Eliza's name comes first, because Victoriana, the man's name, should come first. But at the moment, standard procedure. 24 hours later, young Daniel dies, and so it's two murders. So the mm-hmm. police have to send another report up to the sheriff, and the sheriff has to send another report up to the fiscal. At this point, Samuel is no longer co-accused. No. 
So something happened in that 24-hour period that absolutely clears Samuel. And Eliza is left the only person accused of killing the children. I think this is the nub of the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So what we, I think, today are going to attempt to do is pick apart why Samuel goes from being co-accused to not accused at all and why Eliza goes from being co-accused to being the only person who could have done it. Um, I'm going to get my defence in early and I know you're the same as me, Doug. Neither of us has a police background or a legal background but just using a bit of common sense and reading what we're reading, there are so many questions. Yeah. And that's what I think we should look at today is all of these questions. And this may be probably our longest ever podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think we, we need to start looking at the why questions and the, the why not questions. Indeed, indeed. In, in, in order to apply a little bit of chronology to this, um, let's then look in detail at, some of the issues that, that we feel need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, let's start with the early days of the Claftons, because I still have a lot of questions hanging over this, sure. this these early uh-huh. days. Uh-huh. Then maybe we can move on to the events of March 1871, when the murder of the two kids actually takes place. Yeah. And then in this part, uh, finish by looking at the trial itself, which takes place later that year in June. In June, yeah. In, in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, I think just to break it down. That yeah, way. yeah, yeah. Try now, and make you, sense. You've uncovered quite a lot of information since we last had a, a good old blether about this in terms of the early days of the Claftons, because there's a lot of moving happens. Yes. Well, initially, we knew that Samuel was from England. We weren't quite sure where. But we couldn't work out why he'd moved to Scotland. Because yeah. he'd just been for work. But then we came across this thing where Samuel himself says, and again, getting our defence in early, one of the key things to remember about this case all the way through is, other than the suicide note and the razor, there is no physical evidence. Hmm. All we have are what people say, say. happened. Yeah. And they constantly contradict each other. It's like me saying I'm six foot two. I'm not, I'm five foot one. But there you are. I would like to be six foot two. So everything that we're, we're talking about <laughs> is based on statements that people have made. People's memories change for natural reasons. They might have something to hide. They might be trying to fit in. They might be trying to say something that they think is helpful. So this is what we're working with. Yeah. You know, so, so here we community are. and hearsay. Exactly. Oh. But if we start with Samuel, now Samuel says that at one point he was living in Dukesbury. He doesn't claim to be from Dukesbury, but he's living in Dukesbury. I had mm-hmm. to look this up. It's just south of Leeds. Yeah. And according to him, a local lassie alleges that he is the father of her illegitimate child. Uh-huh. This is wrong. He's not the father. And he runs away. He runs all the way to Fife and changes his name. And I don't understand why. He also changes it to John Smith. To John Smith. Which is the oddest name to change. Yeah, that's odd. (laughs) But what I don't understand is human nature is human nature. Sometimes babies are born out of wedlock. It happens. Now, this local lass in Dukesbury says Samuel's the father. Mm -hmm. And he isn't. Why does he run away? Indeed. Because all he has to turn around and say is, well, I'm not the only lad she's been with. And... She's already a bad person because she has had an illegitimate baby. You can't count on her word. So why would he run? I I don't understand that. If he's the father, I can understand him running. Yes. But not if he's not the father. And he's adamant that he is not the father of this. Another thing comes to mind, actually, while you're on this. He's on the run. Yep. Yet he bypasses the Borders region and goes to Fife. The Borders region is replete with mills Really interesting point there, Doug. Really interesting because the Borders is the big area for for weaving. So why he would shoot all the way up to Fife? But he does. Um, So that's a little bit odd. He pitches up in Leslie in Fife as well. It's not even as if he's going to like Kirkcaldy or Dunfermline. Mm -hmm, He pitches mm -hmm. up in Leslie. And that's where he meets Eliza. And he introduces himself to Eliza as John. He's John then, yeah. So he's John at that point. Eliza's maybe (coughs) only about 16, 17 years old Mm -hmm. when she meets John, presumably falls in love, and he says, let's move to Selkirk. And they move to Selkirk. And then 
after a few months, let's get married. But he's got a problem because at this point, because they're going to be married in church and, you know, God's listening, he decides to come clean and says, oh, by the way, my name's not John, it's Samuel. And it's not Smith, it's Clafton. But Eliza by this time has left the family and she's with this guy and what she's supposed to do. So they get married in Selkirk and then within a matter of months they're living in Stow. It's one of these situations where you can explain each and everything that happens. But when there's so many things, it just seems really odd. Many of the records you, sorry to interrupt, but many of the records you've been looking at, not only does his name change, his age seems to change as well. Yes, and that's an odd one. Now, the census... Clerical error? Well, the the thing with the census is most people who took the census, census takers were paid by how many entries they did. So they did it quickly. So you can have an error there. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, depending on when your birthday is in the year and when the census is taken, it can be out by a year or two. And then there's human vanity. You might want to make yourself a couple of years younger. It happens. I couldn't possibly comment on that. But his age changes by about six years. And most men aren't that vain about their age. So that's an, that's an, it's just a little oddity. It is. Yeah. You know, as I say, it could just be that he was a bit vain, but it's, you know, it's the, it's just all of the things that Samuel seems to dodge about the place and change his name and change mm-hmm. his age and was in Dukesbury or maybe was in Dukesbury. And, and, and what's really funny is that the Kelso Chronicle has a report about the case, obviously, when, when the murder's discovered, before the trial. And it actually says in that newspaper article that he had the alias of John Smith. Uh-huh. So by the time he pitches up in Stout, he's a married man. Eliza knows he's Samuel Clafton, so why all of a sudden does everybody know that he's called John Smith? That That's a bit of a... Now, maybe Eliza's used to calling him John, fair enough, mm-hmm. and somebody might have overheard that, but <coughs> for the Kelso Chronicle to know that it's John Smith is a bit odd. That's odd, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a bit odd. As you said earlier, it, 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 individual aspects of this are explainable but there are so many things piling up there are just so many of them yes (laughs) which is which is a bit odd it's casting a a a dark shadow over the way this works out exactly um you also i think discovered something about eliza's parentage Yes, initially we had thought that Eliza's mother was Betsy Sinclair. And certainly in the census records, Eliza is listed as Eliza Sinclair and she's the third child of Betsy Sinclair. Um, But it turns out that Betsy wasn't her mother, Mm -hmm. Betsy was her aunt. It's her auntie, yeah. And Betsy's sister, Isabella, was actually Eliza's real mother. Mm -hmm. Um, And this would explain why her little girl is called Isabella. And uh, she's described as the natural daughter (coughs) of Isabella, so she herself is illegitimate. And again, I know nowadays nobody cares. In Victorian society, it's really odd. There were lots of people who were born illegitimate. So it was common, but it was still frowned upon. And as we spoke about in the last episode, Eliza is slightly deaf. She's got a bladder problem. She's Episcopalian. She's not local. And now we've got this illegitimacy. Mm-hmm. Now, other people might not have known about it, but she knew this was a matter of shame. So it's just one other thing that isolates Eliza from her friends or isolates her from her neighbours. <coughs> she, she can't really talk about her childhood very much in yeah. case somebody knows somebody. So it's yeah, just I, one yeah, more thing yeah, that poor yeah, Eliza's yeah, got. Yeah, yeah. To I don't wish of... to personalise this, but when I found out I'm adopted, and when I found out I was adopted, I I think my initial reaction was a, a sense of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. So I can I can yeah. think into that, and very and much do. more so in Victorian in society. In those days, for sure. Yeah. You yeah. absolutely. It was it was shameful for a woman to have had a child, and it was shameful for that child. And, and because it would have been her female, fault. Yes. Oh yes. Because it's. Always the women's fault. Finger pointed that. And way. going back to Samuel and Dukesbury, yeah. it would have been that lassie and Dukesbury's yes, fault. Yes, yes. Not Samuel. So why is he running mm-hmm. all the way to Scotland? Mm-hmm. Unless he actually was the father and just didn't want to pay up, didn't yeah. want to take care of, of yeah. business down there. So yeah, that, that yes. Victorian morality that I know that we're going to get into in another episode, yeah. that weighs heavy. Okay, so these, the, that, that's a fairly good, um, 
insight into the early days of the Claftons, when they get together, why they're moving. Yeah. The background of Eliza herself. Yeah. yeah. There was, as we moved towards the March of 1871, there, there was something that I read, which was about an operation Eliza had had at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Yes. And I remember asking you, where did the money come from for that? Yeah. No NHS. St- no further forward with that. It was obviously some sort of bladder operation um, after Eliza had Daniel. She seems to have been more or less incontinent, <coughs> yeah. although there's a fleeting reference um, by Samuel to Eliza having had a stillbirth. Um, but there's no mention um, by that of any of the doctors. So I don't know if this is just something that Samuel thought had happened or was saying was happening. I'm not quite sure. But Eliza seems to be more or less incontinent. Um, but where she got the money for this operation? And there was going to be a second operation had she not left. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm not quite sure. Yeah, one um, of the doctors does, does mention that at the trial. So let's let's move then to the, the trial itself. This takes place in, in Edinburgh. It does, yes, at the High Court in Edinburgh in June. My first question to you about this whole thing is why does Samuel make no appearance at the trial, either for the prosecution or the defence? I do not know. I have absolutely no idea. There's nothing I can find where... Because the whole point is that by the time they get to the trial, everybody is convinced <coughs> that Eliza is guilty. Yeah. She did it. Yeah. So... That, that's a given. So the only defence she can run is the fact that she was mentally unstable at the time of the crime. Yeah. Okay? So who's the best person to say what the mental state of Eliza was on that day? Her husband. Her husband. And yet neither the defence nor the prosecution <coughs> call him. So if I'm the defence barrister, my defence says that Eliza is mad, I'm going to call Samuel and say to Samuel, is your wife of unsound mind? What was she like that morning? Exactly you came that. home for yeah. your dinner at lunchtime. Yeah. How, how, how mad was she? And you're going to say, oh, it's terrible, <coughs> it's terrible, and it's awful, and she's been like this for ages, and she was completely mad, and I shouldn't have left her. The problem is that at that point, mm-hmm. the prosecution barrister gets up and says, why should I believe you, you're Mr. Lying yeah. Samuel Clafton, yeah. Yeah. with the alias, with the name changes, with the moving about, with the age changes? And didn't you abandon a woman down in Dukesbury? Well, you see, you were, you know, so you can see why he could be picked apart. Alternatively, if he's going to give uh, evidence for the prosecution and say, no, she's sound as a pound uh-huh. and she's just a wicked woman, again, the defence can rip him to shreds in that witness box. Because once you're in the witness box, they can ask you, anything. They could have decided to go all the way down to Dukesbury and get the girl that you abandoned allegedly. They can do all sorts of things to you. But why should they bother? If everybody knows Eliza did it, it's just a case of is she mad or is she bad? And this 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 binary approach, mad or bad, this seems to have been adopted very early on and, and as a consequence of that they whitewash out yeah. Everything else. Everything else. Because remember, it's Victorian values. Women are either Madonnas or whores. Yeah. The mother is central to Victorian society. So for a mother to kill her children, she's either mad or bad. Uh-huh. And that's it. Because because remember, of course, Samuel is no longer a co-accused <coughs> because something happened over that 24-hour period that Samuel is completely innocent um, and it's Eliza what done it, therefore it's just a case of mad or bad. But it's still, I still wonder as to why either the defence or the prosecution didn't bring him Absolutely. in. And the only thing I can think of is the fact that the opposition barrister could have ripped his testimony to shreds and neither wanted to take the risk because they had their case. Eliza done it. Yeah. So you don't want to upset that case. The prosecution can bring in 101 doctors to say that she was of sound mind and, you know, the defence can do the same thing. So that's why you're, you're not wanting this man who's dodgy mm. in that witness box because who knows what he could say or who knows what could be brought up against him or about him. There's an old saying in the law, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer uh, to. Yeah, yeah. And that's the problem with Samuel. You don't know what the answer's going to be. Uh, and and I'm beginning to believe that that's how this this actually panned out. Is A decision had been made. She'd done it. Yep. 
And everything else is going to fit into that box. Yeah. It's like when you watch television crimes today, obviously, you know, watch the television programmes and you've got yeah. CSI and all these sorts of things and lots of forensics, which we don't have in this case, obviously. You'll often get the, the, the classic one is prime suspect. When uh-huh. The police have got a mountain of evidence and they know Eliza done it. And so what they do is they find the evidence that proves Eliza done it as opposed to following where the evidence takes you. And that's the thing. I'm not having a go here. I'm not saying that they got up in the morning and sort of, you know, everybody got together and, and conspired <coughs> against Eliza. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they did. But I think it's a case of somebody must have done it. She's there. The razor's there. Her throat's cut. The children's throats are cut. Who else could it be? Therefore, all the evidence points towards it. So you ask the questions that give you the answers you want. Yeah. And and that's what they did, was instead of following the evidence where it, where it led... They've, they've pushed the evidence to lead them to Eliza. They want to back the way. Yes. <laughs> from. Yes. When we visited the location and we looked at where the, the Claftons lived, where the shop was, we looked at where the doctors were and mm-hmm. the post office, and the timeline seemed very strange in terms of a lot of the pretrial Submission well, the timeline is all over the place. It's all over the place. It's all over the place, yeah. Now, this led me to believe there were alibis being concocted. I think so, yes. Not only for the, 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 the principals in this, but also for various doctors and police people and mm-hmm. so on. Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, there is so much in this that, for me, is very inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, the timeline starts off where... Eliza goes to the shop, we think about five o'clock in the afternoon yeah, to buy the yeah. bread. The shop closes at six. Kirsty says uh, yeah. that she found Eliza in the shop sometime after six o'clock, pinching the soap mm. and the tea and the this and the that and the next thing. Mr. White says that he left to go to the mill at half past six. Now, at this point, I don't understand because no. we've stood at where the shop was and we could see where the mill was the mill hooter goes off just before 7 you can hear it from now why would you go out on a cold, wet, dark March evening to walk for 3 minutes to stand outside a mill that you know is not going to be open for another 25 minutes don't understand that one at all but anyway so Mr White says he walks along the road stands outside the mill for 20 minutes he says it himself waiting for Samuel to come out to tell Samuel to something tell he Samuel already knows. Something that apparently he already knows. Your wife's been nicking out the shop, right? They then walk up and down outside mm-hmm. Samuel's house for about 20 minutes. Yeah. For some reason, it takes 20 minutes to say your wife's been in the shop nicking again. again. After they've done that for 20 minutes, they then go back to the White's house for another 20 minutes conversation. Yeah. Don't know why. Then Samuel leaves, then Samuel goes home, and he gets home about 8 o'clock, and the alarm is raised. (laughs) That's a nice vague phrase. (coughs) So the alarm is raised, and policemen and doctors and neighbours and shopkeepers and mill owners and mill workers and everybody in the granny seems to be involved, and the doctor is sent for. That's a nice vague phrase. So somebody apparently running down the road to get Dr. Middleton or Dr. McDougall and Dr. Buchan from Gala Shields just happens to be in the neighbourhood. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? Why the Gala Shields doctor isn't killer yet, never explained. But anyway, they find him. He is the first doctor to arrive. And then Dr. Middleton and Dr. McDougall arrive after that. The more local doctors. The more local yeah. doctors. But it's not explained how they got there. <coughs> Round about quarter past, twenty past eight, Sergeant Milne pitches up. He then says to somebody, keep an eye on the prisoner because I'm away to get my colleague. Now his colleague is PC Barr who lives up at Heriot. He's based at the Heriot Police Station. So Sergeant Milne goes away to get him. Now there's why, no telegram why, why from would the, Why would a policeman go away and I don't leave know. someone else in charge? I don't know. I initially thought that maybe PC Bar was up to something that he shouldn't have been. Or Milne's not allowed to be around too. Maybe. maybe. Who knows? Um, So you see what I mean? There's always something. There's There's something. something. So he says, right, you keep an eye on Eliza. I'm going to go and get my colleague. 
He goes to Harriet and doesn't come back for two and a half hours. He says himself he doesn't get back to the Claftons until after 11 o'clock at night. So he's done a round trip of about 15 miles? Yeah, if it that. Takes two well, and a half hours. Well, I mean, I don't know, how slow was the horse he was in the back of? <laughs> yeah, Some donkey yeah. that moved at two miles an hour. See, he comes all the way. And during this two and a half hour period, folk are putting the wee girl Isabella's dead and she's getting taken away to her neighbour's house and Daniel gets taken away to her neighbour's house and then somebody helps Eliza into her bed. At this point, I don't know what Samuel's doing because it's very conspicuous that in none of the statements is anything said about him, yeah, so I don't know where yeah. he is. Mm-hmm. When Sergeant Milne leaves, he asks somebody to keep an eye on Eliza. Yeah, Doesn't yeah. he ask somebody to keep an eye on Samuel? Even though at this point, officially, Samuel's still a co-accused. Yes, yes. So then he comes all the way back. So at 11 o'clock, they come in, and, and the doctors are faffing about, and they're taking care of Daniel, and they're taking care of Eliza, and this and that, and the next thing. And then Sergeant Milne says to PC Barry, you keep an eye on her, I need to go down and make out my report to get sent to the sheriff's office. And that's when it's, you know, the co-accused. That's the co-accused, yeah. So that's fantastic. PC Barr sits in the house with Eliza overnight. And then Sergeant Mellon comes back in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this this two and a half hour gap going up to Harriet, um, I don't understand. I mean, it doesn't say... Sergeant Milne goes up to Harriet and discovers that PC Bar's away in something like, I don't know, Overshields Farm and it's an hour away in a horse. And you say, well, fair enough, it's a rural area, that makes it. But that's not in there. What's really interesting to me in reading the over 900 documents that I'm going cross-eyed reading is often what is not there. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting the things that are not there and that then don't appear during the trial. Because if you'd said... Went up there, he wasn't there, he was out in the farm. Fine. Or we went to Manor Head to try and find Dr. Middleton and he was out on a call. But it's yeah. not explained. And I know this might not all come up in court because you wouldn't need to bother, but it would be in the precognition statements. And Dr. Buchan just happens to be in the neighbourhood. Um, yeah. So all of that little timeline to yeah. me, what happens in that timeline between Eliza allegedly having the argument with Kirsty over the over the soap uh-huh. round about yeah, yeah. six o'clock to yeah. half past six up until eleven o'clock. There's an awful lot of time where there's an awful lot of people running back and forth and back and forth and mm-hmm. in and out of the house as well. Mm-hmm. Um and everybody knows everybody it's not like today where the police, you know, keep witnesses separate so they can try and get the story straight. Everybody's chatting to everybody. Yeah. Where were you and what were you doing? And <clears throat> what do you think happened when the when the mill hooter went off? Yeah, yeah. But one thing that did come up at the trial, and, and we heard at the beginning of this part, part two, was the suicide note. Yes. And this has always bothered me. Mm-hmm. This has always bothered yeah. me. If Eliza had intended to kill the kids... Mm-hmm. Why does a suicide note contain the phrase, take good care of the bands? Exactly. And there's another document that troubles me about this as well. Uh-huh. PC Barr's precognition statement. Now, PC Barr says that Sergeant Milne says, Eliza said, I wasn't going to hurt the children and then I changed my mind. Changed my mind. Now, to me, that's it. I read that line. I thought, smoking gun, uh, she'd done it. She did it. Yeah. Two things, though. One, it's never mentioned in the trial. I didn't come across that in the trial. Record. Why would you not have that? Because there you go, proof positive, she'd done it. Yeah. And you could even say, look, she's mad, she said one thing, and then she changed her mind. See? Or the prosecution is saying, oh, she's pre-medial, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Never mentioned. Yeah. And the other thing is... That in PC Barr's statement, he says, you know, PC and Sergeant Milne says, Eliza says, and then the next line is, I was not there when it was said. Well, he does a Pontius Pilate then. uh, Why would you write that? It doesn't matter if you were there or not. If your sergeant says she says it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why are you trying to distance yourself from what the sergeant says? And the sergeant's precognition is really badly written. Uh 
but it is there. But why would you, a junior officer to your sergeant, say, I wasn't there? I wasn't there, yeah, yeah. And I think that's why it's not brought up at trial. Because if you're bringing that up at trial to say, dun, 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 Mm -hmm. smoking gun, and I'm the defence barrister, I'm just going to turn around and say, well, PC Barr, explain to me why you're saying that. What's that statement all about? Uh Is, Is Sergeant Mill known for making things up? What's going on? The, yeah. Why would Sergeant and it brings Milne, the timeline back into consideration. Yes. And, and, and you know, I mean, why would Sergeant Milne say it if it's not true? Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. it is true, then why is PC Bar not want to have anything to do with it? doesn't matter if you were there or not. That's irrelevant. Mm. It's amazing the irrelevant things that people write down in their precognition statements. But I don't understand that. Because when... Does Eliza say this to Sergeant Milne? Because Sergeant Milne turns up at the house about the back of eight. The alarm is raised, right? Sergeant yeah. Milne is there. And within seconds, he turns around and says, keep an eye on the prisoner. I'm going. I'm going away yeah. to get my colleague. Yeah. He is then gone until the back of 11 at night. Then he comes back with PC Bar. So they're together in the house. Yeah. He tells PC Bar, you're watching the prisoner overnight. I'm going up the road to write a report. He writes the report, puts that into the sheriff's office, who sent it up to the, the fiscal's office. He comes back in the morning. Where is Eliza? Where is he alone with Eliza? Because he turns up the next morning. The doctor's there, PC bar's there, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. <laughs> and the flipping his. Everybody's yeah. there. Yeah. When is he on his own <clears throat> yeah. with Eliza? For her to make this statement. This. Yep. Because yep. the only time that he's there with Eliza when PC Bar is not there is before he gets PC Bar there. It's before he goes off to Harriet. Before he goes yeah. off to Harriet. But he doesn't, before he goes off to Harriet, it's, it's all confusing. He's just in, oh my days, I need a colleague here. He's not questioning Eliza at this point. Mm-hmm. The only time he starts to question Eliza is afterwards. Yep. So that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's why it's not brought into the trial. Yeah, yeah. Because PC Bar knows full well it wasn't said. Because, you know, that, that is your smoke. Because that line, you're absolutely right. There are two things in the suicide note, and you picked up the other one as well. <coughs> but the first one is that take care of the bairns. Why would you cho- You know, to, to kill yourself is a huge psychological thing. We have spoken to, to, to a psychologist about this, and they've told us, that the intensity, actually killing yourself is a huge thing. Yeah. Most people don't, because obviously you want to live. If you're in such a mental state as to be focusing on killing yourself and not killing your children, to then change your mind is yet another step to have to take. And it's very, very rare. You might kill your children and then kill yourself, but you wouldn't write in a note, take care of the bairns, because you've made one decision, and then you've completely reversed that decision. You've gone 180, I'm now killing my children. Yeah. So that's a massive thing for her to have done. And it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't ring true, and it also doesn't ring true with the point that you picked up on later in that suicide note about the, the whites, they wrong everybody. They wrong everybody, yeah. Because if that they is the whites, in what way are they wronging her? Uh-huh. They allow her to, to shop in that shop even though she steals things. They give her tick. They allow her to buy things yes. when she doesn't have the money. They give her work. They give her work to do with the washing. They have her round to the house on occasions for social events. Eliza is trusted to be in Eliza the house. Eliza is trusted to be in to the house. To be living with yeah. them. Uh, I mean, they could have easily turned around and said, no, you can't come into the shop anymore because you pinch things. I went down to the shops and stout. So in what way are they wronging her? So the daughter's evidence, Kirsty, at the trial about her mother saying to Eliza, basically, this has got to stop. Mm-hmm. My feeling is this has nothing to do with stealing. Oh, okay. This is something else uh, that has to stop. Right. It, it, it's not clear. Uh, mm-hmm. And despite Eliza's various challenges in, 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 in her life, I believe she's gone to that shop, not with the intention of stealing anything, mm-hmm. but of confronting Kirsty White. 
But I think we need to leave that for later down the line. We, we thought that in a later part, we might, bringing all this together, present an alternative scenario mm-hmm. for what actually happened. But that does go back to Mr. White going all the way along to the bill. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So there's the big argument in the shop. And he says, oh, for goodness sake, I'm going to have to speak to Samuel about this again. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. It's cold. It's dark. There's no street lighting. It's cold. It's dark. It's probably yeah. wet because yeah. it's March in Scotland. He's sitting in his nice, cosy, warm house with a coal fire. He's going to walk along the road mm. and stand outside a mill for 20 minutes in the cold and the wet when you can hear Spread. the mill hooter. Yeah. Right. That yeah. one makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. He then finds Samuel and they walk up and down outside Samuel's house. For 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. How, how long does it take to say, your Eliza's been in the shop and nicking again, that's it, we've had enough, we've, we've been okay up to this point, but we just can't take it anymore. And she started a big stushy with Kirsty, we're not having it, she's yep. barred for the shop. Yep. Yep. How is that a 20 minute conversation? Even if Sam's saying, oh please, come on, it's going to be embarrassing, she's going to have to go to the shops and stow, and everybody's going to know, and they're going to ask questions. Okay, maybe, maybe a 20 minute conversation. But then they go back along to the White's house and sit there for another 20 minutes, having another 20-minute conversation. <coughs> that's where Kirsty is. <laughs> and that's where Kirsty and Mrs. White is. And the daughter, um, having looked at the trial records in a bit of detail, the daughter, Kirsty White. Yeah. Her ev- Now, of course, day in court, uh, spotlight on, you yep. know, you know, Relishing the spotlight being on her, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. But her testimony is just so full of what I would call red herring. She's talking about dogs, whistles, bells, yep. the position of packets of tea, yep. and, and it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Yeah, she's now, central to this for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I sort of, I sort of got Eliza in my head, if you like. And I've sort of got Samuel in my head. Kirsty, I still quite, can't quite hold her. She's 15 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. Roughly 15 years About old. About the age of the, the, the younger girl, Dewsbury, perhaps. Possibly, <laughs> you never know. Um, so, it's just, it's almost as if, yeah, you're right, I think she's relishing her time. In this. She's, she's the daughter of a local shopkeeper. Now, we think of upper class, middle class and lower class. Oh, no, 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 no. In Victorian times, there were so many class distinctions. Yeah. If her mum and dad run a shop, if her dad is a, is a provision merchant, she's a cut above. She is indeed. She's a cut above yeah. Eliza, who's the wife of an ordinary weaver worker, right? Yeah. So Kirsty is already, you know, she's got that on her side. Yes. She's 15, mm. she's in the shop, she's just about getting to marriageable age, whatever, you know, and... She's yet. she's in stow. Nothing exciting's ever going to happen to her. And now something exciting oh, has now it happened. Has. <laughs> so she gets to go on the train all the way up to Edinburgh, yeah. into legal chambers, and she sits there and everybody's hanging on her every word. Now, if she goes in and she gives a precognition statement of, I served Eliza, then she came back, found on the shop, nicking some soap, bit of an argument, my mum comes down. That's not exactly a very long statement and it's not exactly very exciting. Mm. And guess what? She might not even get called f- to give evidence because yep. everybody knows Eliza did it. Uh-huh. Right? The, the crime doesn't take place and there is no crime in the shop because they get the soap <coughs> back. Yep. So, in a way, they could say to Kirsty, well, thank you very much for your precognition statement. And then when it comes to the trial... The defence could say, well, she was so stressed about being found stealing that it unbalanced her mind and that's why she did it. They might not even need to call her. They could just read out her statement to say, yes, there was an argument in the shop. Mm-hmm. But Kirsty gets to talk about whether or not the bell was working. I'm reading this again. You know, I, I, I remember going downstairs. My father, I had not heard the shop bell before I went down. Nor had I heard any noise. Uh, I'm not sure if the bell was working or not when I got into the, And it goes on and, and on, on yeah. and on. And then we get, there's a dog. Eliza there's said a there dog, might have been a dog a and there penny. wasn't a dog. There's a penny. There's a packet of tea. <coughs> yep. There's soap in the penny. There might have been something else in the penny. The till might have been opened or might yep. not have been opened, but I didn't know what. And she was behind the counter and then she came out from the counter. 
and it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, all the classic line of "Ripe me, ripe me." Yeah. Now, yeah. Penny Dreadfuls, Penny Dreadfuls were oh god, they were awful things. They were lurid novellas, yeah. which usually involved a rape and a murder. It was usually uh, the front cover would be some picture of some woman in state of undress. And they were known as Penny Dreadfuls because you could buy them for a penny and they were absolutely awful. But this phrase, ripe me, ripe me, means to rip me or to stab me. And it is a classic line from a Penny Dreadful. Yeah. When Jack the Ripper was committing his murders a few years after this event, the fact that it was a man and there were blades and the people were ripped, the women were ripped apart. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Kirsty is enjoying her time. She's given all so. this evidence at the precognition statement. And then, after she's done the precognition statement, mm-hmm. she gets to come home to, to kill a head and stout. And she gets to tell everybody about her day up in the chambers. And then, after that, she gets called back up to give evidence in the High Court. Yep. With all these newspaper people reporting every word she writes. Now... To be fair to her, she's a 15-year-old girl and nothing much exciting is happening in her life. So perhaps she embellished. Perhaps, yeah. And maybe she's trying to be helpful. And maybe she is genuinely talking about the bell because she genuinely thinks that's important. Maybe she genuinely thinks that Eliza talking about a dog or not talking about a dog or whatever is important. Or maybe she's just padding it out to have as long in the limelight as possible. Indeed. Or maybe... It never even happened. I mean, who knows? Who knows what went on in that shop? Because we've only got her suggestions to what happened in Mm -hmm. that shop. Apparently, there's a huge argument going on, and yet her parents, who live in the room directly above the shop, don't hear a thing. They hear nothing until (coughs) she goes and calls for her mother. Mm-hmm. And then her mother comes down and says, a stop has to be put a to this. A stop has to be put to this. But there's this huge row with bells and dogs and packets of tea and ripe me, ripe me and tearing at dresses and screaming and bawling and shouting and yet her parents hear nothing. Yeah. I, th- I believe that, that Eliza has gone to the shop to confront Kirsty about something. I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah. And this touches on the part of the, the, the suicide that what they... Mm-hmm. They wrong everybody because yeah, I, I they, they didn't wrong her. Yeah, as I say, even if even if Eliza was <coughs> nicking but, soap, yeah. why is all of this screaming and bawling? Why does her mother not hear any of this? Why does her father not hear any of this? And why do Samuel and Mister White go back to the White's house? Go back to the White's house. Why does Why does Mister White leave his house, his perfectly warm, cosy little house at half past six? Yeah to walk along the road and stand outside in the cold and the dark for 20 minutes because you can hear the hooter. His house is 250 metres away from the mill. You can hear the mill hooter going off. The mill hooter usually went off something like 5 to 7 and then the workers would go out at 7 o'clock. allowed them time to, you know, finish off the looming, close down any machines they needed to close down. Finish off what they were doing. So if the mill hooter goes off at 5 to 7, he can then get up Put his coat on, come down the stairs, walk up, and he will still be outside the mill before Samuel appears. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? Why is, what, what is going on there? Why has he got to catch Samuel before? Because Samuel lives right next to the mill, right? So why has Robert got to get to the <coughs> mill? Why is he going to catch Samuel before he goes into his house? Why not actually just wait until Samuel goes home and knock on the door? Knock on the door, yeah. Have a conversation, then. Why are you walking up and down outside? Why does Samuel say, oh, I'm really, really sorry, come on, we'll, we'll go inside and we'll talk it through with mm-hmm. Eliza. No, it doesn't do that for 20 minutes. And then, let's go back to the White's house for 20 minutes. I think because they need to hear from the daughter, Kirsty. And uh, it's interesting, in all of the precognition statements, for the 20 minutes that Robert's outside the mill with his son... Mm-hmm. He just says, I waited. Mm-hmm. No detail as to what happened in that 20 minutes. Then he says he met with Samuel and they walked up and down outside the house discussing the matter. What matter? What, what matter are they talking about? No detail. And then <coughs> they go back to Robert White's house, but they don't say why. And they talk for another 20 minutes, mm-hmm. but they don't say what about. The it's matter. really curious because 
in Kirsty's testimony, we've got loads and loads and loads of detail. We've yeah. got detail coming out of our ears, yeah. detail we don't want nor need. Yeah. And yet, the stuff that we do want to know about, which is why did you go to the mill early? What did you talk about outside the mill? Why did you go back to your house and what did you talk about in your house? Mm-hmm. No detail. And nobody asks them. Nobody asks. Or if they did, they didn't get an answer. And I do not believe for one second that a barrister up in Edinburgh could not be the better match of a provisional <coughs> merchant yeah. in Stow. He'd be like, now come on, I want to know what you were talking about. Indeed. You're yeah. giving a precognition statement. This is a legal document. This will go to the High Court. You need to be telling me what you were talking about yeah. for that first 20 minutes and the second 20 minutes and why you moved back to your house. And yet, it's not asked. The questions are not asked because, remember, Eliza's guilty. All we're trying to prove is yes. whether she's mad, mad or, or bad. bad. Because we have a paucity of information in some areas, and then yeah. we have, with Kirsty's testimony, an abundance of irrelevant Aye, information. Irrelevant information. In James, sorry, Jan, I keep getting my name wrong today. In Samuel Clafton's precognition statement, it's full of things like, well, I had my breakfast at nine o'clock and I came back from my dinner at two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm thinking, well, where is, now, admittedly, that is, you know, it's a, it's a timeline of his day and that's mm-hmm. absolutely fine. Yeah. But it's nothing about, you know, what was your my wife's mindset that yeah. day or, or, you know... What, were you talking to Mr White What were you talking to Mr White about? for all that time? Why did you go back to that Were house? you surprised when Mr White standing outside the mill to meet you? Yeah. Why did you talk for 20 minutes in the cold mm-hmm. um, about that? And why did you go to his house? What did you talk about? None of that's there. Yeah. It's all yeah. background stuff. Oh, my wife's illegitimate. So what? What's that got to do with anything? You know, it's full of things. I mean, Samuel's statement is full of really odd things. There's one point where he's asked about the razor, and he said, oh, yes, it is my razor, but I never used it. But James Roebuck used it. Now, why the name, the neighbour James Roebuck's getting named, I've no idea. Why have you Mm, got a razor and not use it? Yeah. And let a neighbour use it. And let a neighbour use it. Mm. Now, it might well be that over the winter, and this is you know, something that men mm-hmm. did. Men would allow beards to grow in the winter because it keeps your face warm, keeps your mm-hmm. face and neck warm. But uh, Samuel and Eliza are more or less living hand to mouth. They're working poor. Mm-hmm. I'd have that razor down the pawn shop in Gala Shields if it was me, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, that's just an odd one. It's just a sort of throwaway comment that he chucks in there. So bells in the shop that may or may not have been working and razors <laughs> and Samuel's home, which he may or may not have used. It's, not have used. it's all a bit strange. Yeah. And as I say, every, you can explain each and every one of these. For example, the razor, men grew a beard in the winter <coughs> and he would be yep. clean shaven yep. in the summer. You can explain every single little point of this. But there are so many of them. It's the old Oscar Wilde to lose one parent. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate to lose two starts to look like carelessness. Well, folk are being offy-offy careless in this case because there are so many why questions and so many why not questions that as ordinary non-legal minds, we can see this. Why could they not? Mm -hmm. Or were they so blinded with this notion that she must have done it? I think you're right there. I think you're right. You know, the, the, there's just so many things. It's mad or bad. She was mad or bad, and that's the end of it all. Um, there's a whole army, that's not the collective noun, but there's there's a whole load of doctors at the trial. Oh, yes. Giving giving evidence. And one thing that is always, without, I have no expert knowledge, but one thing that's always concerned me about this is the use of a razor to cut the throats of the kids. Yes. That doesn't seem a very motherly thing. To do, do you have any? No, and again, we did. We did speak to our, our psychologist friend <coughs> on this, and yeah. she said it is extremely unlikely. Unlikely. She yeah. said most women that kill their children kill their children by cuddling them or putting them to sleep. Mm-hmm. So you will smother your children, bring them towards you, or you yeah. will give them a poison in their in a cup of cocoa or something, mm-hmm. or very occasionally you'll cuddle them and jump off a bridge. 
so the child is with you while you and, and the child are dying. This is what yes. worries me again about the suicide. No, right. That's what she yeah. Most <coughs> women in Victorian society killed by poisoning. Yeah. Most men kill using blades. Yeah. It's a huge thing to take a blade and cut another human being. There's a reason why surgeons, for example, in hospitals are quite distant from their patients because... Yeah. Psychologically, yeah. it's a massive thing to slice somebody with a knife. Yes. It's even more massive to slice somebody with a knife if it's your child. I mean, when, when Eliza goes to the shop the first time, she's got Isabella on her hip. She's still breastfeeding this child. Yeah. So she yeah. goes from breastfeeding the child and cuddling her and having her on her hip at five o'clock in the afternoon. And by the back at eight, this child's throat's been sliced. It's, it's not, a usual thing for a mother to do. Now, Eliza, let's say Eliza wanted to kill her children. She could have smothered them. She could have easily poisoned them. She could have got laudanum. She could have got arsenic. Um, You can easily get arsenic from any shopkeeper in in Killiche or Stow sold arsenic. It was used as a rat poison. Mm -hmm. It was very easy to get that. Now, you know, the poison's actually had to sign it through, but, you know, she could have got herself poisoned. Quite easily. Yeah. She could have smothered them quite easily. She could have, and this is another female one, is she could have taken them to the river or the mill lead yes, and drowned indeed. them. But to cut a child, to cut a child yeah. is a huge thing and is extremely, extremely rare. There are very few cases of that. And she has the young one with her on her first visit to the shop, and yet yeah. she leaves both of them at home. Yeah. For her second visit. Now, this tells me, perhaps, that she is in such a rage and wishes to confront Kirsty. About something. About something, something. some matter. That she is prepared to leave the kids. We have testimony from people in her past who say that she was a loving mother, etc. Absolutely a loving mother. She was (coughs) was gentle with the children. She was very, very close to them. Apparently, she was extremely close to her daughter. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know what's going on there. I'm trying to read through these flipping documents and find a neighbour who says, and she left them with me, uh-huh. but I can't. You can't. I can't find that. <coughs> it's also a very difficult time because six o'clock, when she goes back to the shop, allegedly six o'clock to seven o'clock, the men are coming out of the mill at seven o'clock, so six to seven, all of her neighbours are busy, you're getting the tea yeah. on, you're getting the kids washed and ready for bed. Yeah. You know, it's a busy, busy, busy time yeah. to be nipping into a neighbour. And what are you going to say to the neighbour? Excuse me, can you watch my kids because I'm going to nip along to the shop. They're going to say, but the shop's shut. Shop's shut. Where are you going? What are you doing? Yeah. You've got no reason to go. Um, You know, so, so again, that's really odd. But for her to, to, to slice the throat of her child, I mean, the very fact that she couldn't kill herself... That tells you everything you need to know psychologically. Indeed. You know, it's a massive thing to kill yourself with a cutthroat razor. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're saying is that she is in such a state, she's had a huge argument with Kirsty um, over, a, over a piece of soap, a tiny piece of soap. That has upset her so much, and she's stolen before, remember, that she goes all the way back home, she takes her dress off, hangs it up, <coughs> gets pen and paper, how convenient that she's got pen and paper in the house and ink. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, anybody who's working poor has got that lying about. Yeah. She writes out her suicide note. She goes and gets the razor, which is kept up on a shelf. She then changes her mind about killing her children, mm-hmm. slices her daughter's throat, slices her son's throat, and then slices her own throat. Don't believe it. Yeah. And I'm given sorry, her medical conditions, how convenient that it's soap she goes to steal. Yes. So, as I say, and and yeah, the fact yeah. that all of these elements are not brought out in the trial, because the trial does talk about her mental state. <clears throat> yep. The whole t- trial is predicated on whether she's mad or bad. That's it. And the prosecution, especially the prosecution, brings in every doctor they can find yeah. to discuss her mental state. And whether or not, and funnily enough, they don't discuss whether or not she's suicidal. No. They just discuss whether or not she's mad yeah. or excited is the phrase they use. They actually don't really discuss whether or not she was suicidal. 
and and this is where this idea of is this is where this overemphasis, in my opinion, on lactation comes in yes. throughout the trial when yes. the doctors are giving evidence. There, yes. there is. Can you cast any light on? That? I think it might be that postnatal depression was misunderstood by the Victorians, okay. and it was thought yeah. that it was lactation that caused mental excitation. Okay. I think that's what it is. <laughs> um, they go on and on about the fact that if you excessively mm-hmm. breastfeed your child, it can cause men- mental excitation. Yeah. Um, but it's quite curious. I can actually sort of almost feel the frustration of the prosecution barristers because they have all of these expert witnesses who come in and explain that lactation causes mental excitation and it causes physical exhaustion and you shouldn't lactate for your child for too long. And she's been breastfeeding the child and the child's 11 months old. And so what the prosecution is trying to say is that she's done all these things, but yet she is still sane. She's a bad woman, you see? And the problem is that they have to lead the doctors down part of the way because they know that that's what the defence is going to go with. But then get the doctors to stop and say, but she was perfectly sane. But of course, doctors being doctors seldom speak in absolutes. Yes. So what the doctors will say is, it causes this and it causes this and it's causing Uh. this. But actually, in her case, no, we don't think so. And let's not pursue that because the 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 suckling of the the, the child to the breast is again inconsistent with slitting their throats with. Yes, the exactly. And of course, they have all of these problems. <clears throat> and then they, I think the I think the prosecution gets a bit desperate because at one point they bring in the surgeon. Um, I think it's McClellan. His name is from from the infirmary uh, yeah. who did the bladder operation on Eliza. And he pitches in with his Tumsworth yeah. as to her state of mind, even though he hasn't actually seen her <coughs> in about two years, and he's a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. She smells. It's soap she was after. But yeah, his Tumsworth is yeah. in, yeah? And then you've got the doctors for yeah. the defence. Yeah. And again, you can feel the frustration of the defence barristers because they're saying, well, you know, lactation, and yet again, yes, it causes mental excitation, it causes this and causes that and causes yeah. the next yeah. thing. And then they say, so she was mad then? And they'll say, oh, possibly. Couldn't possibly say. Couldn't possibly say. <laughs> the, the classic medical uh, yeah. reply, couldn't possibly say for definite. Yeah. You know, but this is where they're going. And actually the evidence of, other than Kirsty, the evidence of local people, the evidence of local weavers, you can feel the barristers going, oh, well, we don't need, we don't need don't that, need you know. That. We yeah. don't need the evidence <laughs> of the woman who lived next door to her uh-huh. and saw her on a daily basis. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to hear what she thinks about Eliza's state of mind. I want the surgeon <laughs> from the Royal that hasn't seen her for two years but yeah. once operated on her bladder. His opinion matters because he is a man and he is educated and he's a Victorian professional and I'm a barrister and he is a doctor. Yeah. The wee weaver wifey next door, and I would not listen yeah. to her. So you can, you can, you can feel sort of Victorian society at play during the trial until they get to Kirsty's evidence. And then Kirsty starts with her story. Yeah. And she's got her story to tell. And to me, what's interesting in the trial is not bringing Samuel to trial, is not picking up on what PC Barr said about well, well, I wasn't there. And not mentioning in the trial the fact that <coughs> Eliza is supposed to have said, I changed my mind. Yep, yep. None of that's mentioned. Samuel, whatever, whatever. And yet Kirsty with her whistles and her dogs and her bells and her this and her that and the next thing, that's there. That's there. Because that's all they've got. Of, In a way, Kirsty's evidence is the only evidence they've got that can't be contradicted. I think that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Because Sergeant Milne can be contradicted by PC Barr or Samuel can be contradicted by the people who know him. The only person that was in that shop with Kirsty is Eliza. So <coughs> Kirsty's the only bit of evidence they've got that they can't, you know, the, the other side can't bring somebody up to, to contradict. So I think that's why she's so important in this trial and that's why it is built round what Kirsty says, the prosecution are saying, 
Look at how terrible she is. She's dirty. She smells. She steals. She's killed her children. Yeah. She's a bad woman. Yeah. She starts arguments in shops, screaming matches in shops. She's a bad, bad woman who killed her children. And the defence say, oh no, she's been caught stealing again. She's a poor woman. She's unclean. She's been shamed because she's unclean. She's been shamed by being, by being caught stealing. She's shamed by having an argument. And so, at that time, she was upset, the balance of her mind was off, and that's why she killed her children. That's what the case is about. The case is about Kirsty's evidence, because there's nobody to contradict it. Because Eliza mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. saying a word. Because remember, the only thing that Eliza said was, I remember writing a suicide note, I remember cutting my throat, I do not remember touching the children. And she does not change from that position. She doesn't say anything other than that. She doesn't <coughs> contradict Kirsty. She's not asked to contradict Kirsty. No, they no. don't come up and say, well, Kirsty said this, and what do you... Nothing. That's all Eliza says. I do not remember touching the children. I'm beginning to believe that maybe... Yeah, I think you're right, that, that Kirsty White's evidence becomes central to this. Yeah. But... I think there may well be another reason. Indeed. For that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an idea, Mary. Um, for part three, mm-hmm. why don't we look at the events around this this tragedy against the backdrop of Victorian times and values, the role of women, the role of the the class system, because I think there may be something that we can glean from that 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 helps us understand why the trial went in a particular direction. I think that's an excellent idea because if, as everybody is saying, she was so shamed by having caught stealing that she killed, attempted (coughs) to kill herself and killed her children, then we need, need to look at Victorian shame Victorian values and that I think needs to be our next episode in the story of Eliza okay thank you very much Mm -hmm.